Well, Grace, uh, we've sung it and we've declared it, and I trust we believe it, that great is his faithfulness to us. Amen? I don't know about you, but much of my life, I'm coming back to the to quoting a father recorded in Mark chapter 9, made the declaration, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And that's not a negative statement. I believe that, that it's, it's what God is calling us to walk in. The reality and the firmness, the confidence that we have in our belief and our faith in God and our desire to trust him more. Because he is absolutely faithful. He is absolutely faithful. We can depend on him 100% of the time and he will never fail us. So it's in that confidence that we are called to live and to walk every day, moment by moment, that God is faithful. And we're going to look at his faithfulness today, and we're going to look at the faithfulness of, of his son Abraham. And as we've been going through Genesis, we've been talking about story, that this is the story of God, of God. it's God's story, and it's the story of mankind and our story with God. So I don't know if you remember this, but in the introduction and for um, over the weeks, we have often said that, that the story is being written, that there's a pen. And God has this huge pen. I've got a little pen, and I need to surrender my little pen to his big pen. Does that resonate? That so many times I'm writing a story, and I have my, my small perspective and my limited uh, understanding. And God's saying, just give me the pen. I want to write this story in your life uh, that goes far beyond what you can imagine. So I would like you to consider a story or scenario here, and it's, um, it's a story that some of you have gone through, I know, but um, most of us have not. And this is what I would like, I'm just going to set up the scenario very briefly, and I'm going to, I want you to write the story then in your mind. Uh, this is the, the scenario. Your house is on fire. Now, you're at the house, and you have 60 seconds to take whatever you can out of the house. What do you grab? I don't want this to be rhetorical. I want you to be thinking about this. Your house is on fire. You have 60 seconds to take whatever you can in 60 seconds. What do you grab? Now, I'm pausing because I really want you to think. Now, now, obviously, unless we're in that situation, we don't know for certain. It's not until we're in the moment that we would know with certainty what we would grab. Uh, but I'm going to just be a little bold here and give opportunity for you, to, some of you, if you just want to shout out one of the things you're going to grab. <laughs> okay. I caught some of those things. Um, I did hear cats in there, I think. Um, I heard children, and I'm so glad, because <laughs> I really wondered if, um, so I'm thankful for that. Uh, many, it might be a computer, there's so much of life there, or you have a, um, a firebox or, or something like that. But, but what we would grab in those moments says something to what we put priority on in our lives. Like, what is most important to us? Now, again, this isn't a, a bottom line, you know, um, tell-all. But yet it causes us to think, what's really most important in my life? And when we, when we said children, I was thinking, especially for, you know, maybe parents with lots of children, like, do you start naming them? Which ones you would take first, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> so 
the thing is, 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 you know, this is a scenario that I, that I painted, but yet it can be a reality. And before I shared this, I, I had a conversation with the Benas last night um, because two weeks ago they lost most of their possessions in a house fire. Um, and God has been, you know, as Michael said this morning during worship, as, you know, as we go through the, the, the tests, the trials, the difficulties, God, we trust you. God, you're working. Um, but, but they didn't have that opportunity. They didn't have the 60 seconds. They came back to a home where they were trying to discover what, had, what was left. And I just want to give this testimony. Susan said, this is miraculous because uh, the fire started in the bedroom area of their house. And one of the things that was spared in the fire, one of the very, very few things, is her Bible. That was in that room. Uh, I mean, it's miraculous. It really is. Um, and it just, the word of God stands true. And I can tell you back in December of 99, uh, Shrewsbury Assembly of God had a fire. It was devastating. It was a million and a half dollars worth of damage. And one of the amazing things was the Bible uh, that was on the communion table in the, in the center uh, of the sanctuary was spared. And it was, uh, but the word of God stands fast. So whatever we face, we know that the word of God stands fast. Uh, but as we're walking through this, like what stands fast in our hearts? What is priority? What is most important in our lives? And while the, the text today, as we're looking at Genesis chapter 22, the text, uh, the heading in many Bibles say Abraham's tested. And that certainly is what we're going to be looking at. But I felt an appropriate title for today would be ultimate love. Would be ultimate love. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see Abraham's ultimate love. We're going to see what is absolutely most important to him. We're going to see God's, a, a presentation of God's ultimate love in this chapter. And it'll give us a chance to look at our own lives and evaluate, you know, God, what is my ultimate love? Is my ultimate love where it needs to be? How are you calling to grow me in what the ultimate love is in my life? So what I'm going to invite us to right now is um, a time just to, for some of you that literally being open-handed, I often do this in prayer, um, whether, you know, in, in my own prayer time or, or in prayer times as a, as a body. Um, sometimes I just like to go open-handed, so I'm going to invite you, if you would choose to do that. The open hand is this, it's, it's, it's a two-way thing. First of all, for me, that open hand is, is a surrendering. I'm presenting to God me, all that is me, but then it's also posturing myself to receive from God. Uh, so if you would choose to do that, you're more than welcome to, but I would encourage you, uh, at least in your heart and your mind, again, whether you're here in person or joining us online, we're so thankful that you're with us as well, to just posture yourselves to give and to receive this interaction with God this morning. God, thank you for this time. God, we thank you that you are here. You're always present, God, but we thank you for the way that you are among us. Lord, we thank you that you are in our midst. And God, right now, we want to bring ourselves before you and just open up our hearts to you, our minds to you, our ears to you. And Lord, we want this time to be a time of continued worship, of just presenting ourselves, all that we are before you. And God, we offer ourselves before you, and we desire to receive from you all that you desire to speak into our lives. So Lord, we pray for your truth to be dominant in every one of our lives. Lord, right now, God, I pray that you would help us to, uh, to tune to your word, uh, to your spirit, and to hear you speaking truth that you desire to uh, touch our lives with and to bring uh, freedom to our lives, Lord, to draw us closer to you. And God, we, again, are so thankful 
Lord, that you are trustworthy. You are faithful all the time. We thank you for your love for us. And we give ourselves right now in these moments, God is worshiped to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the pages or the, the um, chapter that we're going to look at in, uh, in Genesis chapter 22, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. The words are going to be on uh, the screen, but if you're following along electronic device, you can tune there if you're in a hardcover uh, Bible. Uh, I want to encourage you, like if you don't have the same translation and there seems to be conflict to dig it out. It was really interesting. A couple weeks ago, um, I read a verse and the one phrase in the NIV was completely different than another translation. And it was really cool because the person came to me and said, like, like, man, I was just taken back. It's like, is Mark preaching the word? <laughs> and yes, I was reading from the NIV. The translation had uh, words around it and worded a little bit differently. So if you're using another translation, it's good. It often brings another perspective. We're going to be looking at the NIV this morning. But as we look at this chapter, we're going to be looking at some, uh, some words of God that are very, very challenging. In fact, I think it's uh, probably one of the most challenging uh, declarations of God in Scripture in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, but we're going to see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and what can seem challenging is actually incredibly beautiful. And uh, we want to discover that beauty together. But as we look at what's challenging in Genesis 22, I, it connected me to a cha- some challenging words of Jesus in the New Testament that he spoke in Luke chapter 14. And these are the these, again, are words that Jesus spoke that can be very troubling to us and can seem conflicting with who he is. Uh, scripture beginning in verse 25 says this, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now those words, many of you may have heard teachings on this, and as we read it, you may have a different understanding than, than some others. But like when we look at this, like, is Jesus really saying this? Like, is this an accurate presentation of Jesus' words? And the answer is yes. These are words of Jesus. If uh, depending on your Bible, that's red letter. In verse 26, where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. These are words of Jesus to the large crowd that was following him. Now, what is he saying there? You know, we, we, want to, we never want to change or to water down what Scripture is saying, but we also want to understand it for the truth that it is. And one of the things that we've often said is that, that any truth that we, we come to conclusion as we read Scripture and we say this is the truth that's presented, it must be in alignment with the rest of the Word of God. That God does not conflict with himself. And this is what we're going to be looking at in Genesis chapter 22 as well. That when Jesus is saying to hate, that we need to hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, even our own lives. When we look at the root of that, what it is, it's not a declaration of feeling or some word of antagonism, of being against. This word that's translated hate here is actually a comparative word. That it's a measure of our loves. When we talk about what we love most. That in comparison to our love for Jesus, our love for those that are closest to us, father, mother, brother, sister, children, even our own lives, in comparison, that love for those that are closest in our lives is to, is to appear as hate. The difference needs to be so great. Now, the thing is, it doesn't mean that, okay, we go home, we treat our family terrible and say, I'm just following Jesus' words. I'm supposed to hate you. 
That's not following Jesus' words, okay? So let's not pull out of context, not, not, let's not misunderstand, um, because, you know, Scripture tells us to honor father and mother. I mean, it t- talks about taking care of family. You know, over and over, we are instructed, we are given responsibility. It is like God to love all, so we must as well. But yet, our love for God is to be so much higher, so much higher. And one thing that I've found is that, is that as I've pursued this, and this is something that, that I've seen and I've often come back to in my life, like, like you know, I, I love the people that are closest to me. In fact, Jesus said even love your enemies. Do good to them, right? But like, when I'm desiring to love those that are around me more, whether it's the family members or friends or people I don't even know, if I want to love them more, then I need to love God more. Like when I have that priority, when he is my greatest love, the other things come into alignment. That, that it gives me that capacity because when I have an ultimate love for God and when I have this, this highest desire in my life is to love God, to serve him, to give my all to him, then, I, then my, that, that love capacity in my life rises for my family members, for those that are around me. And this is what Jesus is, is saying here. But we're invited, in fact, we're called, as Jesus said, as his disciples to, to carry our cross. And that means that we're coming alongside of Jesus in his suffering and in his surrender, in his obedience. That we're willing to, to bear shame and scorn. And, and we each have a cross to carry. And sometimes we can put that on a person. It's like, you're my cross to carry. That's not very good either <laughs> in biblical terms. Now, situations can, can seem heavy at times, can be challenging. But our call to carry our cross is to walk as Jesus did and following his example. We're going to be looking at that closer uh, today as we move on. So let's begin reading uh, Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to take the verses uh, just in small sections, and as we go down through, we're going to um, see what God would have to speak to us through each portion of Scripture. So beginning with the first two verses, Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, or he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, if you're familiar with the passage, you know what's going to play out. If you're not, make sure you stay tuned because this is not a good place to stop the story. Okay? These, we talk about conflicting words, like what we expect to hear from God and what's in alignment with God's character, his nature, his person. And this sounds like a huge conflict. But we're going to walk through this, and we're going to unpack it, and we're going to see incredible beauty as we go through uh, these, this passage. So let's start with the first three words, sometime later. Uh, okay, so that's a comparison to something, right? Sometime later. Well, what, is it, what is it talking in reference to? Well, if you go back to last week, you remember Phil taught uh, from, from Genesis chapter 21, he talked about the birth of Isaac. Uh, that the promise came to, uh, to, to Abraham and to Sarah, and it was after a long time of waiting. And, you know, he talked to us about how, you know, God gives a promise, but many times there's a delay in the fulfillment, and, and God calls us to be faithful, and there's this journey, and often we may fail and make mistakes, but we're called to wait, and it's an active anticipation of what God is going to do. Well, they, so, they had that anticipation fulfilled. The child of promise came, Isaac was born. But then that meant another child needed to be sent out. Because the child of the flesh, the child of their own decision, Ishmael, was mocking the child of promise. And by God's instruction, Ishmael was sent out 
with Hagar. So, so we, were, we were talking about how, uh, and Phil gave some beautiful uh, comparisons of how, you know, the things of the flesh can't, can't coexist with the, the promise of God. That we need to get rid of the flesh. We need to crucify the flesh. We need to allow the life of Jesus to grow in us more and more. And we must be focused on growing in grace, not in law. That the, there's, there's collisions there that can't coexist and have the fullness of life that God has called us to. Uh, so this is what, what happened. But at the end of that chapter, we didn't touch on this last week. It had been referenced before. But there was a treaty that Abraham made with Abimelech. And it brought a time of peace. Abraham was living in, in, the, uh, in the area of, of Beersheba. And there was this time of peace. There was rest. The promise was there. And we don't know how much time this was. It's, again, it says sometime later. Um, there are some scholars that, like, it's, it's all over the map of how many years may have, have transpired here. Uh, some say that it might have been, like Isaac at this point might have been four years old. Some people say 37. Like literally, it's that much of a gap. Uh, as I've looked at it, I think there's uh, good reasons and support for possibly in his teen years, maybe 20. Um, but but there's, there's some time had passed, and it's a time where things were going good. Uh, again, there, I know this may be reading into it a little bit because we don't have the details, but, but the end of chapter 21 leaves with peace leaves with the promise right with them, leaves with fulfillment, Ishmael is gone. It, it seems like life was going pretty good. There was stability, there was security, there was a sense of permanence. So this is the sometime later that God comes and God tested Abraham. Now, I, I want you to, to hear that this God tested, like this is an active work of God. God tested Abraham. Now, what does it mean to be tested? Um, so, for those that are in school, or maybe, um, and it could be not just teens, but adults taking uh, classes, things like that, the, the test is the time of evaluation, right? Where you've done the preparation, uh, hopefully, uh, you've studied, you've uh, tried to work through things that you don't know, and now time of test, the test is before you, whether it's on a sheet or on the screen, and you take the test, and the purpose of that test is to show the instructor what you've learned. It's revelation for them. Now, it's revelation for you, too, and part of it was what kind of a test giver is he, right? <laughs> you know, and, and for some of us, um, some of us are, make, might be really good test takers. Like, you don't have to study much, but you're good at taking tests, and others, like, you know it, but like that test, you just, you hit that wall, and you go blank, and you, it's hard to figure out what they're asking. But it's for the purpose of the instructor evaluating what you know. That's the purpose of the test. With God, God knows all things. So when we look at what, where it says God tested Abraham, this testing is more for Abraham's sake so that Abraham will know what he knows. So Abraham will know where his faith is. So Abraham will know his ultimate love. So the, this testing, and, and it's important that we understand this, that when we go through the test of life, that, that we're, we're looking, it's, it's again what, what Phil said last week, you know, it's, it's about the, the process. It's about this growing, that the testing is meant to help us see more clearly where we are, who we are, where we're at. And from that, we can, we can you know, discern ways that we can grow, and we can celebrate ways that we ha ha have grown. So the testing was for Abraham's sake. Now, there's a difference between test and temptations, Okay, and, and different translations of different verses, sometimes those words are used interchangeably. 
but there, there are differences between test and temptations. So test here, again, it says that this was clearly from God. This was not a temptation from God, okay? In James chapter 1, you know, we're told there that, that, we're, that God doesn't, doesn't tempt us, that we're tempted when we're drawn away of our own desires, okay? So, I mean, that the, the, the temptation is something from the flesh, and the enemy wants to use the, use the temptation. But see, God brings tests for the purpose of drawing out the good in us and building up the good in us. Temptations, as the enemy wants to use temptations, is to bring destruction. But, but when we look at, at life and we see that tests are for our good, we have a very different perspective. And when we look even at Jesus' life, in both Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, after Jesus' baptism, he's baptized in water, um, the, the seal of God is, is put upon him, is, this is my son, and, and then it says clearly that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tested. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested. The Son of God himself was tested clearly. After 40 days of fasting, the temptation of Satan came, but this was a testing that God was using in Jesus' life. And, and there's so much beauty in that. If you go back and read it, one of the primary things is that it's the word of God that Jesus used to have victory through the test. Jesus passed the test. He always does. But here, again, we have Abraham being tested. Now, the thing is, is that we don't have God coming to Abraham and saying, this is a test. Right? We know it because the word of God says it. 4,000 years ago, Abraham didn't hear that. But we know that God tested him. Now, Rick Warren, A Purpose Driven Life, some of you may have read that, and, and there's some really um, foundational things that, that are so beautiful in, in that book and in the teachings of The Purpose Driven Life. But he says that, that life is a test, it's a trust, and it's a temporary assignment. But life is a test. He said that like, just, that's something that we need to, to accept. We need to understand that life is a test. And he goes on to, to explain, when you understand that life is a test, you realize that nothing is insignificant in your life. When you realize that life is a test, there's nothing that's insignificant in your life. Each thing that we go through is an opportunity for us to learn, to grow, to see where we're at, to see, to celebrate, and also to be challenged. Life is a test. Now, the thing is, is that tests can often throw us off. When the hard time comes, it can throw us off, but it shouldn't. But here's something that I read that just is just so helpful for me. So many times we look at the ideal of life and we expect that that should be the normal. I want you to think about that. So many times we look at the ideal of life, life when it's at its best, and we think that should be the normal. And then when the test comes, we're thrown off because like, this isn't normal, but the reality is that life is a roller coaster, <laughs> right? That there are variations. Yes, there are highs, but there are lows, and sometimes getting there is very quick. There's twists and turns that we don't expect. But so many times we look at, at life, and, we, and you know, we might be in a season. It's wonderful when we're in that season where, you know, I mean, the family's getting along. The dog likes you, you know? Um, you have a steady job that you like. You're able to pay your bills and maybe have a little bit left over. The weather's good, you know? I mean, um, there, there's, there's these th seasons of life where it just seems like everything just kind of fits together, it settles, it's all good, and we think, oh, this is normal. 
Now, it's a season. It's part of life. But, but, but we, we get really out of sorts when all of a sudden something changes. There's a conflict in relationships. All of a sudden, we look at the balance in, in our checkbook, and it's not what we thought it was. It's like, how are we going to pay that bill? There's a job change. It rains. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's things that, that just happen, and, and it can throw us out of sorts, but the reality is, is that, that the ideal is not the normal. The normal in life is that we're going to have highs, we're going to have lows. There are going to be tests, there are going to be challenges. But God is faithful in every part. Every moment, God is faithful. He can be trusted. And he wants to use these circumstances of life as tests to help grow us, to strengthen us, to make us close, to draw us closer to him, make us more like him. But the way that God comes to him is by calling him. And he simply says, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. Now, what does, when, we, when we hear those words, is it just, okay, they found each other? That you know, God was looking for him, and Abraham says, here I am. No, it's more than that. It's God, God spoke Abraham's name, and Abraham says, here I am. God, I'm available to you. I'm available for you to speak to me. I want to receive what you have for me. There's this openness to communion with God. This is the last recorded conversation that we have in Scripture between God and Abraham. There are eight different appearances where God came to Abraham. And this is the last one in, in, in this chapter. And, and, and Abraham's just sim simply saying, here I am. So I want to ask you this morning, even when you woke up, maybe when you came in here, did you hear God call your name? Did you hear him call you? Because the reality is, is that God knows us by name. He knows each and every one of us. And he is calling to us. God is a personal God. And he is desiring for this communion. And if you haven't heard him calling your name, I want to challenge you to tune your ears to heaven. And I'm confident that he is calling your name. And wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whatever you're walking through, God is calling your name and he's simply saying, will you come to me? And when your response is, here I am, there's beauty that's going to happen. Now that beauty can look different than what we, can anticipate, what we might anticipate. For Abraham, he said, here I am. And God said, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Now we want to look at this. Take your son, your only son. Those words sound familiar. Think of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's a huge connection here. Father, son, and what's going to happen in the story. But it's take your son, your only son. Now, why would he say your only son? Because we know that Abraham had another son. He had Ishmael. But I want you to remember that, that Ishmael was the product of their, of their decision, of their design, of their attempt to fulfill God's promise. He was not the chosen son. He was not the son of promise. And Ishmael, at this time, this sometime later, Ishmael is gone from their lives. He's now in God's hands. And God will bless him, will make a nation from him, but the blessing is on Isaac. Isaac is now your only son. And that's what Jesus or God is speaking here. Take your son, your only son. He is the son of promise, Abraham's only son, whom you love. 
Now, first mention is so significant in the Bible that we, when we come to something in the Bible and it's the first time it shows up, there's, there's something of great significance here. Whom you love, this is the first time that the word love is used in Scripture. Now, I know in the NIV, there's a couple other times, like even um, earlier we had seen like, um, where Abraham had said, you know, show your love to me. Actually, that, the, the root of that word is really kindness when he was speaking to Sarah and they were conniving. Okay, so, but this is the first time that the, the root word that, that is translated love is used here in Scripture, love, the son whom you love. This is the one that you have given yourself to, that you're sacrificing yourself for. That it's that affirming this relationship between father and son, between Abraham and Isaac. And up till now, we're fine. Go to the region of Moriah, but this next sentence Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. This is possibly one of the strangest, most troubling statements of God recorded in Scripture. It seems so out of character for who God is and what God would say. But he's saying, take this son, your only son whom you love, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. What an incredible test. Now, when Abraham hears this, this is not strange to the culture because the Canaanites, as recorded in other places in Scripture, that the Canaanites, where Abraham was living, sacrificing children was something they did as part of how they appeased their God. So this was not something strange for Abraham culturally, but it is from a faith standpoint. Like, why would God call me to do what the culture does, which is so in conflict with who he believes God is. So this is a test of obedience to a clear command of the Lord when it seems unreasonable and impossible. So will Abraham obey? And in this, I believe there's a significant thing that we can embrace. That when tested, we are called to walk in faith that rests on God's promises and does not demand explanations. That when we're tested, Will we walk in faith that stands strong in God's promises even when we don't understand? We talk about God's great promises, and they are great, and they are what we must embrace even when there's things that, that we don't even don't understand, even when something we don't understand is from God. We stand on the promises. Now, Abraham knew that Isaac was the one. Previous chapter, it says, through him, through Isaac, your offspring will be reckoned. So Abraham knew that, this, that, that Isaac was the channel. The descendants would come through him. All the nations of the world would be blessed through him. He was the one. God told him that. So that was the promise that he needed to stand on, even though God was saying, now sacrifice him. He stood on the promise, even though Things weren't making sense. So, so many times, you know, we come to things and things happen in our lives. We come to a testing and this just doesn't make sense. This doesn't reconcile with who I know God to be. And so many times we can get caught up in, in asking the questions like how, what, why. And don't get me wrong. I mean, we need to process those things with God. I'm not saying don't ask the questions, but let's not get stuck there. Let's, let's posture ourselves so that we can say, God, what do you want to do in these circumstances that will bring you glory and honor? will draw me closer to you, will help me come to this place where you are truly my ultimate love. 
This was an incredibly, incredibly difficult test. But Abraham was standing on the promises. There's a song from many decades or several decades ago, Rust Taff. I think the album might have been Walls of Glass. I'm really flashing back for some of you. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. But Rust Taff had this song called Just Believe. And in that song, there's a repeated um, portion that says, Jesus said it, I believe it, I believe it because he said it, and I know, yes, I know, he's going to see me through. Jesus said it, I believe it, I believe it because he said it, and I know, yes, I know, that he is going to see me through. Will we stand secure in the promises of God, believing on him, even when things seem to be coming against this belief? We're going to see that, that Abraham stood on the promises. He's going to the mountain that God will show him. And this, this points back to the call from Genesis chapter 12 when God says, go to the land that I will show you. Now it's to a mountain that I will show you. And Abraham continues his walk in faith. So we move to the next three verses. Genesis chapter 22, beginning with verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when, they, when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. And listen to this. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. We want to look at how Abraham got to that statement. So first thing we want to look at early the next morning, Abraham's obedience was immediate. God spoke to him. He started moving. Now part of the thing, I wonder, uh, it says that he, early the next morning he got up and took off. I figured he probably wanted to get out of the house before he told Sarah what he was doing. That's Mark's interpretation. But, but I mean, this, these are real things that are happening here, okay? But it's an immediate response of an obedience. But the three days, really, really significant in a, in a number of ways. First of all, early in the morning leaving, that's a response. When you're doing it for three days, that's a decision. I want you to think about that. Early in the morning, that's a response to the word of God. He started. But when we look at three days... That response becomes a decision. You know, it's been said that a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. But here's the thing, is that if I'm doing a journey of a thousand miles that way and I take one step, it begins that way, but it's not going to finish that way. It takes more steps, right? It begins with one step, but we need to keep going. And, and so many times in our lives, and this can happen in places of worship, it can happen in conversation, it can happen in quiet time with God, where something is awakened within us, that there's an enlightenment and there's a response, and we start, but then we stop, or we start going another way. Abraham in three days had time to change his mind. In fact, think about this. It's not just three days. It's nights too, right? So he's laying his head down at night, knowing what they're doing, what they're heading for. I wonder if he slept. You know, I wonder what was going through his mind. I wonder if after the first day, he thought, 
this is not good. I don't get it. I'm going back. But he didn't. He stood on the promises of God. He continued in obedience to the word of God, whether he understood or not. He became more and more resolved. But I also think that this journey of three days helped bring him to the conclusion of that last sentence. Because the thing is that we can get a glimpse of something, but what do we choose to put our gaze upon? We can get a glimpse of God, but will we set our gaze on him? Because so many times we can glance at God and gaze at our problems. But I'm telling you this, grab hold of this. We are called to fix our eyes on Jesus, to gaze upon God and glance at our problems. And I believe that that's what Abraham was doing here, that he was fixing his eyes on on the Father. He was gazing on God, and he was glancing at this challenge, this very significant challenge that was right before him. But the ultimate, he was putting his gaze on God. And I believe that gaze on God led him to stand in confidence that I don't know how it's going to happen, I know Abraham is God's promise. I know, or or that Isaac is God's promise. I know that Isaac is the one. I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus, on God. God, you said that he is it. So I believe whatever's gonna happen on that mountain, I'm gonna obey, I'm gonna worship, but I'm still gonna have Isaac. That we will go and worship, and then we will return to you. I don't think he knew. In fact, I'm confident he didn't know how it was going to happen because in Hebrews chapter 11, this hall of faith, in verse 17, Hebrews 11:17, 17, it says this, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Listen to this. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. In that three days, I believe Abraham was convinced that God told me to do this, and I know the promise is Isaac. So God's going to bring him back. I'm going to sacrifice him, and God's going to raise him back up. Incredible. Let's journey on. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now Abraham had cut the wood that they were taking, which is significant. He's a patriarch. A servant could have done it. But Abraham himself, it says earlier, cut the wood that they took on the journey. Now Abraham places that, that wood on his son Isaac. And that's one of the reasons I don't believe Isaac was four. I mean, the poor kid. <laughs> I think he had to be at least enough old, enough, old enough to carry the wood. Okay, so now he's still referred to as boy, but so was Ishmael when Ishmael was 14 or possibly older. Um, But the wood is placed on Isaac as they ascend the mountain to the sacrifice. Does that sound at all like Christ ascending to Golgotha? It's incredible here. 
But that picture is so strong. Abraham has the tools for the sacrifice. It's a knife to slay his son, and the fire is there to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. Everything is, that's, that's there, that's needed is there. And two of them went on together. And that going on together means going on together in unity, togetherness. But Isaac's question, their statement is question, revealed that, reveals that he understands what worship is about. He says, Dad, and this is so familiar, the talk, the way they're interacting. Dad, yes, son. Have the fire in the wood, but where's the lamp? Abraham says, God will provide. What this says, and, and as I'd read this through this so many times, I've seen it throughout my life, but as Ben and I were talking about this, it's, Ben just saw this right away. He said, you know what? That, it means that Isaac understood worship. And I want you to look at this. Our practice of faith impacts those that are around us. Isaac knew what worship looked like for dad. In fact, his statement, his, his, his question, his question statement means that he knew the process of worship to God. Did they worship this way as father and son before? Was it him observing his father? We don't know exactly, but, but Isaac knew what to expect, what should be there. And he was concerned when something was missing. Are we living our lives before others that they know our practice of faith? Now, th- there's a difference, and I want to be careful with this. We can flaunt our faith in a way that, that does not show the character, the, the, the humility of God. You know, we can, we can push our faith into people's faces in a way that, you know, and there are times for bold statements. Don't get me wrong. Prophets, apostles, there are times for bold statements. So it's not that we're, it's about just being out there. But yet, is our lifestyle, the way we're living, communicating our faith in God? Like when people look at our lives, do they see God? Do they see a love for God? Do they see practices that, that demonstrate faith? And, and this isn't, again, it's not saying, you know, just go out there and, 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 you know, as you're leaving for church on Sunday morning, beep your horn and say, hey, I'm going to church. Just wanted you to know. You know, it's not that. But, like, are we living in a way where, where people see our faith? Because that has an impact on other people. So they're going up the hill, father and son. And what will we see next? Passage says in verse 9, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. This verse or this passage is a continuation of their worship together. Abraham built the the altar, something he had done many times. He arranged the wood. Everything was as usual, certainly as he had done before. Then there's the first. Isaac had probably seen this happen before, but not this. Because then it says, Abraham bound his son and placed him on the altar. 
Now, that in Scripture is a sentence, but I want you to, to go to that place and think about, okay, what's happening there? We don't have the conversation. You know, I mean, if, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how this played out. But what I, what I do know is this, is that there were two sacrifices being made. Abraham was sacrificing his son, but his son was sacrificing his life. And there had to be some kind of cooperation. You know, again, when the, the, the altar's there, the wood's there, and it's time for the lamb and there's no lamb, Abraham has to tell him at that point, God has said, I'm to offer you as a burnt offering, but I trust God, will you trust God with me? I don't know how that happened. I'm convinced that a hundred and some year old man didn't chase his son around, tackle him, and bind him. I don't think it happened that way. I don't know how it could have. There had to be a cooperation in worship that was an incredible sacrifice on both of their parts. Kierkegaard says this, Abraham knew that it was the hardest sacrifice that could be required of him, but he knew also that no sacrifice was too hard when God required it, and he drew the knife. Does what you're going through, the test that you're facing, seem too hard? Does it seem, God, how could you demand this of your child whom you say you love? Abraham was confident that no test is too hard when God is is testing. God provides what is needed in the moment. Will you draw the knife? Will you do what God has said? Will you stand on the promises of God? Abraham wasn't just like, okay, I'm going to do it now, God. Are you sure? You know, and I thought about this. Like, how, I've done this. Like, okay, God, I'm going to take this step of faith. I'm going to step off this stage right now. I mean it. I'm going to, I'm going to take this step right. No, this time I'm really going to do it. That's not what Abraham did. Abraham drew the knife, and he was going to slay his son. And he was so committed, this is incredible, that the first time when God called, he said, Abraham. Here when the Lord calls out, he says, Abraham, Abraham. He needed to interrupt what was about to happen. That's how committed Abraham was. And thank goodness, Abraham didn't stop listening to the voice of God. Seriously. Listening to the voice of God yesterday is important, but I need to listen to the voice of God today. And I need to hear because his hearing spared his son. He heard and he said, here I am once again. Okay, God, I'm available. What are you going to say now? And those words must have been music to his ears. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. God makes an incredible statement. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. There's a statement that I read that just really impacted me this week and it's not on on a slide, but I want you to hear this. Turn your worst time into your worship time. Turn your worst time into your worship time. Is life good? Worship God. Is it terrible? 
worship God. Transform that, that worst time into worship time, and you will see the intervention of God in incredible ways. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I know it's going to reveal God. I know it's going to reveal his love. We're going to see his provision in just a few moments. But turn your worst time into your worship time. And then the score of the test shows up. Cha-ching. Here's the result. God says this. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. So that almost sounds like God didn't know before. But, but we need to understand something. Is that God knew the outcome even before any of this happened. God knew what was going to happen that day before the world was formed. But this is an experiential knowing. When it says here that, that God says, I know now, it means that through the experience, what has just happened, we really together know experientially that you fear God. So you, Abraham didn't even know he was tested, but, but here it shows what the test is for. The test is this, do you fear God? Do you fear God? Now to fear God doesn't mean to be in panic and in fright. It means to have an awesome respect for him and stand in all of who he is. Give all to him. And this, in fact, is what, what has just been proven. So when I fear God, I fear nothing else, truly. When I have this awesome reverence and fear for God, the other fears that come up disappear. We hear God saying repeatedly, fear not, fear not, fear not, because I am with you. When I have an ultimate love for God, when I'm growing in, in, a, in a greater way of having him as my supreme love, I fear him and I fear nothing else. I fear no one else. Are any of us there yet? Probably at times. Maybe at times. Maybe it's something we just long for. But this is what God is offering us. He's desiring that we would have this awesome respect for him. God often takes, Abraham was willing, but God will often take our willingness as the deed. Like if I've really said it in my heart, God accepts that as, as if it's done. Now, let me, under, let me explain this. So he didn't need to slay his son. His willingness demonstrated that his heart was to do it. So the reality is, is that when I'm willing, God may not require it of me. But if he does, I will do it. Does that make sense? That when I'm willing, God may not require it of me. But if he does require it of me, I'm committed and I will do it. That's the settleness. That's the surety. And here in this moment, we can see that loving God above everything else, making him our ultimate love, brings victory in life's test. You're struggling through a hard time. Let your priority be to love him more. You don't know what the answer is. You don't understand how it's going to work out. Make it the priority to love him more. Rick Warren again says that character is both developed and revealed by test and all of life is a test. You will be tested by major changes, delayed promises, impossible problems, unanswered prayers, undeserved criticism, and even senseless tragedies. In every one of these tests, see that you're holding God as your ultimate love and you will find victory in those tests. What is that victory? It's the transformation of our lives. It's us being made more into the, into the likeness of God. It's us experiencing more of eternal life in this present life now. It's that fullness of life, the freedom. And I want you to see something here, and this is so incredible. Honestly, it's worth celebrating. And we've looked at Abraham's life, and we've seen how he lied a couple times. I mean, he did things that were 
I mean, he, he failed in big, time, in big ways, but yet God still called him. God still used him. We need to celebrate his growth in faith. Like literally, I think we need to celebrate. We need to celebrate Abraham's growth in faith. Look at where he has come to in the process. God took his failings and showed his favor, God's favor on him and brought him to this place where he would not withhold his own son, the one whom he loved. What incredible beauty. Can you point to growth places in your life where you've come through tests and you know it's because of that test that you're a different person? Are you in tests now? Allow them to make you more into the image of Christ. Going on, verses 13 and 14. Abraham looked up. This is when he's, he's ready and God says, stop, don't. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. To this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. And he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of, the, of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Incredible what we see here. Incredible what we see in the obedience and the provision of God. But I want, to he, want you to hear this declaration in, 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 this, in this covenant. God has spoken his covenant to Abraham. He's reaffirmed it, but there's some additions here. First of all, God swears by his own name. Second thing is that the fulfillment of the, of the covenant is connected to Abraham's obedience. And thirdly, there's an expansion of the covenant in that he, he says that Abraham's descendants will take possession of their enemy's cities. And then they go back to Beersheba and continue to live life there. We're going to go back to verses 13 and 14. And as we do, we're going to be looking at this incredible picture that points to the cross. We're going to be receiving communion together. And if uh, you did not pick up the elements of communion when you came in, if you would please raise your hand, uh, they will be brought to you. If you would just keep your hand up until uh, they're brought to you, we want you to be prepared uh, to receive communion together. We believe in open communion. That means that, you, that if you're a visitor today at Grace, you're more than welcome to receive. Um, communion is for those who have come into personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about this just a little bit more before we receive together. But Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering. Instead of his son, so Abraham called this place the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh. To this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That the, the, the Lord is my provider, Jehovah Jireh, this name for God, is seen so vividly in this substitutionary sacrifice. That the Lord will provide, it's God provided this ram that was sacrificed instead of Isaac, Abraham's son. And it says that on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. 
Mount Moriah, and there's, there's some scholars have some different perspectives, but this mountain is the same place that the threshing floor, um, it's the threshing floor where, where David had purchased in order to build an altar that stopped the plague. It's the place, the Temple Mount in Chronicles, it says that, that in Mount Moriah, the temple was built. And many believe that's right here on this mountain, right in this vicinity, that Jesus Christ was sacrificed. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That in this place of sacrifice came the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus Christ himself gave his life. And when we look at it, we see so many similarities between Isaac and Christ and the, Abraham and Isaac and God the Father and Jesus the Son. We see that, that both of them, Isaac and Jesus, are children of promise. They were given names before they were born. They were miraculous births. Um, you know, Isaac to one who was barren and Jesus to a virgin Mary. There's so many things in commonality. We talk about the wood that Isaac carried up the mountain. We talk about the cross that Jesus carried. We look at, we look at Isaac being put on the altar that of, his, of his father's decision, of his father's calling, of his father's obedience. We see Jesus being put on the cross in obedience to his father. But that's where it stops. The comparisons, the similarities stop. Because Isaac was the son that was put on the, on the altar for sacrifice. Jesus was put on the cross. But Jesus then also became that substitution. That Jesus was put on the cross as a substitution for you and for me. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how he will, we, will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That God did not spare his own son, but willingly gave him. The last point I guess to look at is this, is that our sacrificial worship is a response to God's ultimate love for us. Our sacrificial worship is a response to God's ultimate love for us. And what we are doing as we receive communion together, we are looking at God's ultimate love for us. We're looking at the gift of himself. And that's the only possible answer is God himself for us. Jehovah Jireh, our provider. We didn't choose it, but we've all been born into a world of sin, into a fallen world. We didn't choose it, but we were all born with sin in our heart, in our lives. We've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, the payment that we pay for sin is death. We earn, we deserve death. But God, but God in his goodness sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to take that penalty for you and for me. And he didn't just allow himself to be put on the cross. He was crucified. He suffered and he died for our sin. He became the only payment that could satisfy the wrath of God. And what we observe today, as we receive of these elements, we're looking at that death. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. You proclaim my death until I return. That the bread is the symbol of his body and the fruit of the vine of his blood. 
that this is his provision, him giving himself. And what we do when we see his great love for us, he's calling us to know that love and our, our great response that brings joy to his heart and life to our, our being is, God, in response to your love, I love you back. I, I give myself to you. This is an initiation of us. None, none of this is an initiation of us. It's a response to God's love. And when I see his great love, that I was lost, I was undone, I was headed for an eternity of hell, but God, Jehovah Jireh, provided the way for forgiveness and for life through Jesus Christ. I want to give myself to him. Hold nothing back. Give all. Now Isaac again certainly was Abraham's son, Abraham's son but Isaac again was, was the way to the fulfillment of the promise. Everything in the, in the fulfillment of the promise rested in Isaac and Abraham laid that on the altar. And as we come to communion table together, I want to ask you, what is it that God may be calling you to lay on the altar this morning? Now, us laying something on the altar is not earning us anything. It is a response of, in worship to God. When I look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and I look at my own life, have I given all to him? And again, I, I know for me personally, there are many times I can say yes. In that moment, I surrendered. I surrender all. So many times it's I surrendered all, and then I took some back. But what we're going to do is just take some time individually to just put ourselves before the Lord, let him call your name, I want to invite you to say, here I am. I'm yours. And we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to be receiving together, but in your own time and in your own way. So we're just going to take a couple minutes. I just want this to be you and God. And I encourage you to look at what Jesus has done, the suffering, the, the sacrifice of his life for you. Know that he paid the price and he conquered sin, death, and the grave. He is alive. We are talking to a living God. Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he's making intercession right now for you and for me. I want you to look at his sacrifice and say, God. And then just respond to whatever he's speaking to you. But when you uh, feel prompted, I just encourage you to take the bread and to eat it. Receiving, again, identifying with the death of Christ. Take the juice and drink it. Recognizing his shed blood for you. I'm going to just take this time, so again, let it be you and God, and just as he prompts you, as he leads you, you can receive of the elements, and then we're going to close with the time of worship. Let me just pray over this time. God, thank you for your goodness, for your love. God, that you have displayed the ultimate love by giving yourself. God, we thank you that your promises are sure, that we can trust you. God, regardless of what we're going through, we can have confidence that you keep your promises, that you are our provider. God, we thank you most of all for the gift of Christ that you gave the ultimate price. Jesus, thank you for displaying love in this way, and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We now receive these elements as expressions of your love to us and as covering for our sin, and Lord, we want to worship you by giving back to you, God, all that we are. 
for your glory and for your honor. 